Good morning. Wonderful. Great. If you're a guest here, great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. No, it's just great to be in the presence of God. Um, how are you coping with the storm outside, with this wonderful, lovely weather out there? I think some meteorologists just sit down in the Met Office, I think, and they find storms before they come, and they try to find and identify the characters of this storm, and they name them after their kids, I think. <laughs> Seriously. They sit down and think, oh, this one, yeah, it comes, creates a chaos, and then disappears soon. That's our Lucy. The other one comes, sits around, it lingers, doesn't do anything. Oh, it's our John, I think, yeah, so we name him after John. Uh, I just love how they choose names for it. But more importantly, how is our faith? Um, how are we coping with life? How are we carrying on through life? And how is our faith this morning? Um, it's the second week. Uh, we're looking at our new series, um, our value, uh, You're Welcome. And uh, it was just this week that Simon clarified it for me at the office. You know sometimes when somebody forgets to say thank you and you whisper under your breath, You're Welcome. As in, and it was just Simon that clarified it wasn't that, because I was preparing for that, but Simon said, no, it's about a value, it's about being a welcoming people. Um, and this morning we'll be looking at the Gospel of Matthew, uh, I've got some good friends who will be helping me with this, so if I could ask you to come to the front please with your readings, that'd be great. Um, sometimes in life we make assumptions about a lot of things, quite, about quite a lot of things actually. I was speaking to a friend who was quite surprised to find out that Yorkshire tea doesn't actually grow in Yorkshire. So, <laughs> you say, you're joking, aren't you? Are you having a laugh? I said, no, it actually doesn't. I mean, the uh, climate in Yorkshire couldn't be further away from uh, the actual place that tea grows. So we make assumptions. Just because it says Yorkshire tea on the tin, we think it, it, it grew in Yorkshire. And the same with the Bible. Sometimes, perhaps from our childhood, we've heard stories from the Bible, we've read the Bible at times, it's been read to us. We've come across different narratives of the Bible, and we think, oh, well, we just make assumptions. These are stories. But I'm going to challenge you this morning. If that's you, perhaps you've read the Bible a lot of times, and you don't necessarily believe everything in it, or perhaps you've never really come across the Bible, and it's the first time that you're hearing it. It's the first time you've um, heard some songs with biblical truth in them, uh, and it's the first time perhaps you'll be reading uh, the Bible and hearing the Bible. I'm going to challenge you. Look at it as a narrative because there is evidence that this actually happened. So this is not just something else. It's not a bedtime story. This is a narrative, a fact that happened. It's not like my friend who thought about Yorkshire tea, that it grew there. This is what happened. So I'm going to ask my friends to come up and read from the Gospel of Matthew. If you've got a Bible, turn to Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. But if you haven't, don't worry. It'll, the words will be projected on the screen. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of all this went through all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But then, but they went away and spread his fame through all the district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demons had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the, crowd, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like, like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Thank you. Amen. Amazing. Thank you, guys. All the Bible is amazing, but I think this bit is just great, isn't it? You just see healings one after another, and you wonder, Jesus has special superpowers. Um, thank you so much to the youth group who came and read this. Uh, they thought that I did this to get them involved, not realizing I wanted them to do the hard work. But thank you anyway. It was great. Thank you. So these are facts, a narrative. These are things that happen. So there are different characters here in, the Bible, in this narrative. There are different people from different walks of life. But what we do know about all of them is that they were all in need. And not just any need. They were in great distress. We won't be able to look at all of this um, today because we're not in a church in the Middle East or Africa. Um, so uh, we've got to finish by a certain time and there's other things that we need to do and I would assume that some of you have your Sunday roast in the oven waiting for you to get back to it. So I won't want to keep you back. But we will look at different characters in this narrative. Um, so the first one, uh, the man, the synagogue leader who comes in and really begs Jesus to do something because he was in distress. We know from the, uh, the accounts in the Gospels of Luke um, and also in, in Mark that his name was Jairus. This guy, Jairus, comes in. He comes in and he seeks Jesus' help. He, he's really in distress. He says, come, my daughter is dead. Come and do something. Now, all of these people in here were considered as those who were the people of the land. So they were generally known as ignorant Jews. They were generally people who didn't really have much understanding of the Bible, didn't really uh, have the ability to read the whole of the commandments and therefore be able to understand and keep them. So these are people, kind of the lowlies of the society, including this guy who is a leader in the synagogue. He comes. We've never heard of him inviting Jesus to his home. Because there are people who do that with Jesus. But this guy didn't. We haven't heard about him having an interaction with Jesus, asking him a question. Really trying hard to understand what this guy is all about. This is the first time he appears in the scene. This is the first time we hear about him. And he comes in because Jesus is probably his last resort. So he was thinking he could either lose his reputation and perhaps his position as the synagogue leader by going to Jesus, or he could keep those things and not go to Jesus and perhaps lose his daughter. 
we know that this time at least he made the right choice. He went to Jesus seeking help. This guy was a community leader. What he would do not would only influence his family, but a lot of people who would be looking up to him. And for him to go to Jesus, someone who is not really in favor with those around him, the authorities, the Pharisees, was a big thing. This guy had a lot to lose. He had a lot to give up, rightly so, for his daughter. So it wasn't like he wasn't risking anything by just going to Jesus and saying, oh, well, will you come and do this? What he did was, though, he probably tried everything else. He'd lost his reputation by going to Jesus and asking him for help. There is faith, though. Some of us may be here this morning thinking, Jesus is my last resort. I've tried everything. I've really come to a dead end in life. And I'm going to go to him. I've got nothing to lose, really. Maybe, yes, a few things in life. But I've come to him because he's my last resort. You're in the right place. The fact that you've come to Jesus doesn't matter whether he was your first or the last choice. You're in the right place. But what you do from today onwards will make a difference. Whether you decide to give him the priority over everything in your life or again allow him to be your last resort. We've got a few other people in there. We've got the flute players. These are people who are mourning. In my hometown, when somebody dies, especially if they die young or die unmarried, we have large drums, and a group of them, around 11, come together and they start beating on these drums. That's a way of mourning. That's a way of telling the neighborhood that somebody has passed away in this neighborhood, someone who perhaps was young or died unmarried. And you would let the whole town and neighborhood know. And people would come in and they would pour in mourning, trying to really come in, letting you know that they're there with you in your sorrows. So these were the people there. They were mourning already because this girl was dead. Then we get to Jairus' daughter. And we know from other accounts, Jesus calls her, little girl, wake up, Talita Kumi, wake up. She was dead. And therefore unclean. She was only a little girl. But Jesus decides to go. We don't really hear a conversation between Jesus and Jairus, do we? Jairus comes in and says, please help me. I'm helpless. I don't know what to do. My daughter's dead. Come and do something. Knowing that Jesus full well has the power to do something. He'd heard about it. He perhaps saw it. But he couldn't admit it because of his reputation. He couldn't admit that this guy is different from others. Because he would lose everything. But... He'd, he had lost everything at that time. He'd lost his daughter. So he went to Jesus and said, come and help me. We don't really hear Jesus saying anything back. It just says that Jesus started following him. All right, show me the way to your home. Went in there. The flute players laughed at Jesus because death is the one thing that no one has overcome. Because therefore, this girl is dead. You're too late, mate. You're too late. Even if you're the best physician like Raj... You're too late. She's dead. And they laugh at Jesus when he says, no, she's not dead. Because they know this is something that no one can ever overcome. In a lot of the funerals I've been in the Middle East, when people are mourning, usually the close family call to the disease and say, wake up, wake up. It's either they want to deny reality that this person has passed away, or there is something else in it. 
But when Jesus says, she's not dead, they think, there's no way she'll wake up. Jesus goes in, restores her to life. Some of the things we read about being welcomed into this church, being a welcoming place, I think one of them was, it was like I was dead, but I've been given a new life. Jesus gave her something that no one could ever give her, a second chance of life. Jesus gave her dignity. He wasn't supposed to go to this girl because she was dead, and as a rabbi, he wasn't supposed to touch her because it would mean that he was unclean. He wouldn't want to do anything with these sort of people. Rabbis would normally not care about these sort of people. But he goes in, he breaks the barriers. He goes in and says, I know by touching you, people will think I've become unclean. I've become a rabbi who doesn't really know the laws. But I don't care about that. I've been sent for a greater mission. So, my daughter, wake up. Are you in that situation where you think no one else can help you? You're in a situation where it feels like death. You're trapped in there. You can't get out. You've been trying everything and anything. You're in the right place because Jesus can. I've experienced it. Many of us here have experienced it in our lives. Where Jesus has come, he's given us a new lease to life. He's, he's given us new life, literally new life. He's brought us out of darkness. And therefore, we've got to go into the places that Jesus went We've got to speak to the people that Jesus spoke to. We've got to go to places where no one else in the society is really willing to go in. To places where people are called unclean. To places where people are cast out, saying, oh no, we don't want anything to do with you. You're the people of the land. You're in the margins of the society. Stay there. Once you touched with Jesus, you would want to do things like he did. Jesus gives the biggest gift to this family. Based on Jairus' faith, who was willing to risk everything, his reputation, his whole family life, everything that his ancestors had worked in that village for, to build up a reputation. He gave that up, and rightly so. If that's what God's called you to, do it. Many people here have had to flee their homes from thousands of miles away. They've had to risk losing their reputation. They've had to risk losing their family. Again, one of the things on there was written, I lost my family, but God gave me an even greater family. Thousands in numbers. But they knew that by accepting Jesus, they would gain something greater. And then along the way, it's not as if Jesus says, all right, Jairus, let's go. Yep, do you want to give me the address? I'll put it in the sat-nav and I'll follow you, or should we just go together? Jairus says, no, let's go together in case you get lost on the way. So they go together, and it's not like as if Jesus just gets to Jairus' house without any events. Along the way, there's a woman. Along the way, there's a woman who's not well. And it's not man flu, because she couldn't have man flu. And it's not something that she's just caught. It's not something that she's had for a week or two. It's not just a bad arm or shoulder. It's not a bad back where she can't lift things. She's had it for 12 years. And it's not just any illness where she would just be able to carry on with life. She'd had discharges of blood for 12 years. Now, it's written in there, and therefore it must be important. It's not to embarrass her, or it's not to tell the world what was the medical condition she had, but it's for us to know that she wasn't really supposed to be socializing with others. According to the law, she was 
not religiously clean. Now imagine that for 12 years, she's not had the affectionate touch of a friend. She'd not had a cuddle from somebody nearby, somebody she knew. She'd not been able to get together with other women in the town and really sharing their joys and sorrows. We're too detached from that culture. So it's really difficult for us to understand. But some of us may feel in that place. It's only been less than 90 years where women have been able to vote in this country. But we just so get used to it that we forget. We think it's always been like this. Praise God that women in this nation are able to hold positions of influence, positions of power. And that's a great thing. But that means we're so detached, we're not really able to understand it considering that it was less than 90 years ago that women found the right to vote. I mean, Bill tells me that it was in 1872 when it all started, really. Um, it became a national movement. Uh, witnessed it as I witnessed, but too. <laughs> so sometimes we think that it's always been like this. But for that woman... It was different. I've come across people, particularly women, who feel like that. Not necessarily because of a medical condition. Firstly, because they're a woman. They consider themselves inferior to men. And that's just how they were brought up. And they don't think that there is a different way. They don't think that that's not what God has for them. They don't feel empowered to really say, no, I was created by the same almighty God. So she's technically unclean and therefore not able to go anywhere really where there are a lot of people. Imagine she wanted to draw some water. She had to go with a time where there weren't anyone else around. Because if they found out that she was drawing water from the well, from the communal well, that meant that the well, the water in the well, would have been unclean as well. She'd be cast out. And she had that medical condition. We don't know why, but it, what we know is that it wasn't because she didn't have her five a day when she was a child. It was something really serious because she'd spent all her wealth on trying to find a cure for it. And no one was able to help her. And do you know what? She was at the right place. She came in right at the right place. Have you heard that phrase? Right place at the right time? She was there. Maybe she was trying to work out when Jesus is on his own, but he was never really unless he was praying and he would leave his disciples and they'll fall asleep. She was trying to see where Jesus was going and along the way, she goes in. Now imagine all these Jewish people around Jesus and this woman who's considered unclean by them, she goes in, she has to really push people out her way. That's a big thing because everybody knows that they're not supposed to be touched by her, but she goes in. Her bravery may be considered as utter idiocy. Maybe people around her thought, are you stupid? Why are you joking? You're not supposed to touch him. You're not supposed to go in there. There are a lot of men around as well. You're not supposed to do it. But her faith and bravery allowed her to go in. She had faith. She just wanted to touch Jesus' garment. Now, to you and I, that may be dodgy theology or touching somebody's garment. All she had and all she could hope for was trying to really reach close to Jesus, just close enough so that she could touch his garment. There are a lot of biblical verses around it, and, um, and there's um, been researchers around what it means. To some of us, it could be superstition. And I'm not suggesting that you should go and touch somebody's garment, uh, by the way. But imagine her trying to do this. 
And she goes and does it. In faith, she knows that she gets close to Jesus, she's going to be healed. In faith, she knows that Jesus has something special about him that nobody else has. Not all the doctors, not all the people who were trying to help her. Let me tell you a story of a friend. Somebody that many of you have been involved in her life. So she came in, um, really broken, heavily pregnant, um, left by her loved ones, homeless, not really having a clue what to do. She was from another nation. Imagine not really knowing the language, not knowing anyone in a place, a stranger and heavily pregnant and being kicked out. So she came in touch with Open Door, and through Open Door, we were able to, tr to try and do something for her. At the time, we didn't have a house available, so um, I think it was Paul who sent an email around and said, this is what's happening, are you able to host her for a few weeks until we find her a place? So a few people were able to host her, and later on, um, she um, came into Chris uh, contact with Christians, she was welcomed into their homes, and then we were able to find her a house. She had her own room in a house. She gave birth to her child, and it was just amazing, really, to be with her in that journey uh, throughout. What was amazing was, in a Christian setting, in a conference about how churches can welcome people, she stood up as a Muslim lady, giving testimony of how she was welcomed by the church. She stood up and gave testimony about how she was welcomed when she was in a time and a place where she thought nobody would ever care for her because her loved ones had kicked her out. She stood up and gave testimony to God's goodness to her at a time and place where she didn't expect it. And it happened through you all. It happened because she came into contact with people who believed in the Jesus who would be turning around saying, to this lady that nobody cared about for 12 years. It's all right. You're safe with me. It's okay. You're in the right place. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to remove your embarrassment and shame. I'm going to allow you to be restored. I'm going to give you a safe place. I'm going to give you a place same as others around me. You're no different to them. In fact, you had to really try hard to come close. I'm going to honor that. Let me tell you another story. Uh, one of our Eritrean friends um, who had to escape Eritrea because of her Christian faith. She came here, her family, uh, including her husband and children, were back in Eritrea. So she came in, um, so she was uh, supposed to really support them. Uh, if the government found out that she was away, she was out of the country, they could have imprisoned the whole family. That's how it works in parts of the world. Uh, she was detained here pending deportation. Um, just naturally, as the church, we tried to do everything we could. And the first thing was we all got together to pray. I remember there was a prayer meeting organized for her at Hope House. We could all gather together there just simply to pray for her. Firstly, to be released and then to be given asylum status. Now, I mean, to be released was one thing. To be given refugee status was a miracle. I mean, we were asking for far too much. But knowing Jesus, nothing was too much for him, really. And then she was released. Some of us were surprised, but sometimes we pray and we are surprised. We were surprised that she was released because the Home Office had a very strong case against her and about deporting her. It was really easy for her to be deported. But God wanted her here. 
So she was released. And she came and she was giving testimony. She said, you know, this church, in her own words, similar, I'm paraphrasing her really badly, it's, it's like the church in the Bible. And I thought, I hope she doesn't say it like the church in Corinth. But she's, what she meant was, it was like the early church in, the, in Acts, where all the believers were together in one heart. She said, I've read the Bible, and this is that church. And I've seen many churches, but this is the one in the book of Acts. And then he turned and said, in your Paul? She was talking about Paul Cattrall. He's the same as Apostle Paul. And I thought, no, love, you're going wrong there. (laughs) So through what she'd experienced, through the power of God, she was not only welcomed, but she was given what was her right. To be treated with dignity, to be treated with respect, to be treated with honor. And when she saw that, she could really put the two and two together and say, oh, I've read about this somewhere. I know it's true. It's not too good to be true. I know it is true because it's somewhere there. Now we know that our Eritrean friend and this lady in the story, they didn't have the perfect theology or even Christology. But what they had was faith. Faith in Jesus. And that faith led them to a place where they could experience grace, where they could come and really be in the arms, in the loving arms of the Father. They saw the Father at work in Jesus. I'm not belittling theology, but what I'm saying is that sometimes we can think that people around us who think a bit differently from us, they're not really able to get there. Then we've got the blind men. We've got the two blind men. There's not just one of them, two of them. And they're shouting. I mean, for obvious reasons, they couldn't go to Jesus and have a civil conversation. They are you free for a cup of tea? Uh, maybe we could just sit down and have a chat because we've got something that we need to just run by you and see if you're able to do it. And then Jesus would get his diary out and say, yeah, maybe in two years' time I'll be able to see you. No, they were shouting, Son of David! Son of David! That's all they could do. They were blind. They had to rely on other people to get them there. But there wasn't anyone around because everyone was busy trying to hear what Jesus had to say. They were busy thinking about their own problems. They couldn't really be mobile and go around and find their way. So they were shouting, Son of David, help us, have mercy on us. And they were using a phrase that Jesus didn't really like. He wasn't encouraging that. Because it refers to Messiah as a military leader, as somebody who would restore the kingdom of Judah. And of course, he would restore things, but not the way people expected him to. So they just keep shouting, Son of David. It reminds me of one time when we were in Turkey and I was preaching in the Iraqi meeting and there was this guy right at the back uh, severely visually impaired and we were just I, I think in the middle of worship or just right after the sermon that he was shouting Yesu Yapna Dawood Jesus, the son of David have mercy on me so we gathered around him and prayed for him I would have loved to say he was healed but he wasn't at the time but what he was saying he was praising God this Jesus, the son of David, for bringing him out of a place where he would have been killed. Despite his blindness, he got there. So he was giving praise and honor to God for bringing a man that was blind from a place in Iraq to a place in Turkey safely. Now, he's very close to these people, to these two. He's very close in terms of even life and lifestyle. He had no one to care for him, but he had God. He was praising Jesus, son of David, thank you. But these guys weren't just praising. They could see before they could see. 
if that makes sense. It's not my English, it's how I meant it. They could see that this was Jesus, the son of David. This was the Messiah. This was the guy who was going to restore things. This was the guy Isaiah talks about. Isaiah says he comes and restores sight. He restores hearing. So this is him. They could see it in faith. And they said, it's him. We're not going to let go of him. This was the one and only chance. What does Jesus ask them? He does a test first. Oh, can you read? Would you cover your right eye? With your left eye? Can you read that for me? Right at the bottom? No. He just asked them a simple question. Do you think I can do it? Do you have faith? Do you think I could do it? He doesn't say, well, have faith. I'm going to give you some positive vibes and some positive energy that will last half an hour because you just spoke to a great guy. And then in your imagination, think of the rolling hills of Yorkshire. <laughs> think of Salt Lake Cliff. Think of that. Imagine that. And the guys would have probably said, oh, we've never seen it, so we can't really imagine it. He would say, oh, just imagine the best thing you could. He does something in there. He restores their sight. He just doesn't give them something that lasts for a while. And he tells them, don't go and telling everyone. And what they do is, they go and tell everyone. I mean, what would you do in that sort of situation? And then we've got the man who's unable to speak. Just as you think, oh, he was coming to an end, or oh, Jesus has healed a few people. There's the man who can't speak, and he can't do anything. Because he's demon-oppressed. He's unable to talk. He's unable to even point to something. So his friends have to bring him and say, look, Jesus, look at that. Can you do something, maybe even... Just heal one bit. Jesus restores the man. He starts speaking. I mean, his friends probably after 10 minutes asked, does this miracle come with a remote control? I mean, can we have a remote because he's talking too much now? But Jesus restores another person in there. Somebody again. Perhaps nobody would care about. Now, you may think that's Jesus. Yeah, it's great, and these are narratives we believe. But I want to tell you, these are things that you have done as well. These are things that you have done over the years. I just gave you a couple of examples and stories of how through you people saw Jesus at work, how through you people who didn't even believe in him the way the Bible describes him came and said, we give testimony that these people are the true followers of him, Jesus Christ. We still don't believe that he is God, but we know there's something special about him because there's something special about you guys. And what you all have in common is Jesus. Because you come from different nations and you from different backgrounds and social standings, but you have something in common. And that something in common is a great person. Are you in a place like Jairus' daughter? Are you in a place like Jairus himself where you think, I'm, I'm losing my family, I'm losing everything? Are you in a place like that woman who's on the outskirts, who's unable to really go into any place without shame and embarrassment, without causing conflict? Are you in a place like the two blind men who just sat there, unable to do anything, thinking that life is taking over and I'm just going to go by with it? Are you in a place like that man who was mute, unable to talk? Do you feel something's really taking hold of you? Do you feel wrapped around in something too great a power to break. Great, you're in the right place. Because we're about to pray. We're going to pray for all of us together here this morning. 
We're going to pray for healing. We're going to pray for the oppressed to be free. We're going to pray for those who are still carrying the shame and embarrassment on their shoulder of whatever it is in their lives to leave their burden to Jesus. We're going to pray for the blind to see and perhaps in your heart too. We're going to pray together. There's nothing special about any person here but what's special is that we're all created by his hand and what's special is that he is at work. So I'm going to invite you all if you'd like to be prayed for to come to the front. There's nothing special about the front, by the way. You, you, you can probably tell that. But it just means that we're able to identify who'd like to be prayed for. And I'd like to be the first to be prayed for. Some of you know that I've been struggling with a bad back. Some of you know that it's through your prayers that God is really sustaining me. He hasn't healed me completely yet. But does that mean he's not God anymore? In fact, what would be easy for me is to believe that he doesn't heal today in this day and age because then I don't have to explain it. I don't have to explain why I've been prayed for and I haven't been healed. And that's the easy way. But that's not Jesus, the Jesus way because if Jesus wanted easy, he wouldn't really leave his father's side and come down. Jesus' way is the best. So if you'd like to be prayed for, do come to the front now. Let us stand together. If I could ask the band to come up, please. And just before we get the ministry team to come out, Raj would like to share something as well. I'm going to pray for healing. Brilliant, Sarush. Well done. Um, but I also felt God say there's lots of people here who feel they're on the outside, yeah, who feel they're on the margins for whatever reason. Whether that could be socially, you know, you're different. It could be religiously, you're different. Yeah, you may be from a different faith even. Um, it might be, you know, you just don't feel worthy. I, I can't do this. I can't do this. What have I got to offer? You just feel a little bit on the outside. And I feel God would say he's covering you. He's bringing the inside to you. And actually that inside is the very inside life of God. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, perfectly together, loving, giving themselves up for each other. And actually, the inside life of God wants to come into you this morning. So if that's you, I'd love to pray for you if you feel you're on the outside.